Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series called The Ministry of Our Lord. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. We've all heard the saying, I can't see the forest for the trees. Well, the saying means, look, I'm looking at the details, but I've lost perspective of the complete picture. Now, losing perspective of the whole or the macro, well, that often leads us to lose interest. And I argue that in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus, to actually put together a picture of the sequence of events or of the whole picture of the life of Jesus, well, that could be of great value. You know, most people have a difficulty grasping the chronological sequence of the life of Jesus. And that's true for a number of reasons. You see, the fact is, we don't in the Bible have just one story of Jesus. We have four. And what makes it difficult is that all four accounts of the life of Jesus have a different perspective. So notice, I didn't say the four contradict each other, or did I say they present us with a different Jesus? No, they don't. But what I am saying is that each of the four Gospels presents us with a different perspective of the life of Jesus. I I suppose, in one sense, we might look at these four books as the fourfold Gospel of Jesus. And together, these four witnesses of the life of Jesus tell us his story, one witness complementing the witness of the other. But again, each witness has his own unique perspective. You know, in our Bible, Matthew comes first, and that's probably because this book begins with a genealogy, and so it serves as a bridge between the First and Second Testaments. You know, Matthew is one of the twelve. He's a Levite of the tribe of priests. Matthew's gospel is written primarily for a Jewish audience. He places a great deal of emphasis on the fulfillment of the hopes and prophecies concerning the Messiah, which are found in the First Testament. Furthermore, of the four Gospels, Matthew at times is least chronological. There's a very specific reason for that. You know, for one, Matthew outlines his story of the Gospel of Jesus by concentrating on five key discourses or teachings of Jesus. They are in order. Number one, the Sermon on the Mount. Two, Jesus teaching the Twelve about their ministry. Three, the parables of the kingdom of heaven. And four, the teaching of the kind of character Jesus expects of his disciples. And then finally, number five, we have the Olivet Discourse. That's when Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives during Passion Week, and it's an extended teaching concerning his second coming. And then around these five major teaching sections, Matthew will take incidents from the life of Jesus, and then he showcases how Jesus' life and ministry highlights what he's been teaching. Now, That doesn't mean that Matthew is not generally chronological, but he's not strictly chronological. Matthew thinks he can combine various moments from the life of Jesus almost topically, and so we can see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of the Messiah. Well, next we come to Mark, which is, as we know, the shortest of the four Gospels. Well, the Mark who wrote this Gospel is also named John Mark, and he also became one of the early missionaries. First, he joined Paul in his first missionary journey, and then, of course, unexpectedly, when things got tough, Mark just dropped out. But Mark, after his stutter-start beginning, redeemed himself. He became very valuable, especially to all the apostles. But, But Mark was not one of the apostles. We do know that when Peter wrote to the churches in Asia Minor, 
just before his martyrdom, he does write about John Mark. 1 Peter 5.13 has the great apostle Peter calling Mark, my son. You know, according to the church fathers, Mark wrote his book, The Gospel According to Mark, just shortly before or just after the death of Peter in the city of Rome. And so shortly before the execution of the apostle Paul, also in the city of Rome, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4.11, bring Mark with you, for he's useful to me in ministry. Indeed, Mark had been very useful. The early church leaders after the apostles all taught that Mark had written the Gospel of Mark in the city of Rome, essentially writing it under the tutelage of Peter. Indeed, the ancient church leader, a man named Papias, said that Mark was the writer for Peter. And hence, even though Mark was not an apostle, his book bears all the marks of apostolic authority. But because of his missionary work, Mark had a very keen understanding that the gospel of Jesus needed to be presented in the Roman world. And so Mark's major emphasis is not that Jesus is the long-expected Jewish Messiah. Look, Mark does believe that. But his emphasis is that Jesus is the Son of God. And so in a Roman world that thought the Roman emperor was divine, Mark says, no, no, it's not that at all. It's Jesus. He alone is the true Son of God. Let me prove that to you. Mark is basically chronological, but the book is short and it's action-oriented. Mark's story of Jesus falls into three movements. In the first, he tells of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Then second, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. And then third, Jesus in Jerusalem in his suffering and death. And because Mark is so action-oriented and brief, he actually contains no birth narrative in his book. And so this action-packed book that records the basics in such a way that an action-oriented person is going to get the main ideas and will come to believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Well, the third gospel is that of Luke. Luke, like Mark, was not an apostle of our Lord. And furthermore, what makes Luke unique is that he's the only Gentile author of Scripture. But we do know from several sections in the book of Acts in which Luke uses the word we to describe the mission of the apostolic team of Paul that there must have been several key moments when Luke was a part of Paul's extensive missionary activity. So in the book of Colossians, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. Well, we also know that in that passage that I already mentioned, that is in 2 Timothy 4.11, where Paul requests that Mark should be brought to him because he's useful to him, Paul also mentions Luke there. Demas, says Paul, left me because he was in love with the present world, and Crescens was called to ministry in Galatia, and Titus was called to Dalmatia. And then Paul adds, Luke alone is with me, which means that he's never deserted his beloved apostle. So what's the unique perspective of Luke? Well, for one, we know that Luke had access to all the apostles, and we do know that he carefully researched the history of Jesus, interviewing the key eyewitnesses who had access to him. Luke alone has the long and extended hymn, for instance, of praise that Mary gave after she conceived the Messiah. And so we have to assume that it's there in the book because Luke actually interviewed her. Now, whereas Mark writes to a primarily Roman audience, Luke seems to have had a Greek audience in mind. His is the longest of all the Gospels. His is also a Gospel that emphasizes the role of some of the faithful women who followed Jesus. He also emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit. And furthermore, Luke emphasizes Jesus as both 
perfect man and perfect God. Now, that would have been especially helpful to the Greek mind who were interested in what ideal humanity looked like, but Luke would have also cleared up any misconception that they might have had of the true Jesus. And that then brings us to the Gospel of John. And it would seem that John wrote his book after the other apostles of our Lord had already passed away. All of them had been martyred for their faith, and John is the lone survivor. He's now an old man, and he's known to the Christian community as the beloved disciple. John had been the youngest of the apostles when Jesus had called him, and after Jesus had died and had risen, it was John who had cared for Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. And eventually, John became the key leader in Ephesus, which in his days had become the center for world Christianity. Everyone, without even a bit of training, can feel how different John sounds than the other three Gospels. And one of the reasons for that is that John assumes that the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been widely read and that many of his readers would have been well aware of them. And so John is written for two reasons. First, to demonstrate once and for all that Jesus Christ really is God come to us in human flesh. And second, the gospel is also written to show us what genuine faith in Jesus actually looks like. This book is actually an evangelistic tract that helps you to know whether or not when you believe in Jesus, you're believing in him authentically. And so there we have it, four gospels that describe the life of Jesus. But because of the way that they've written, a great many people are still somewhat confused about the actual life of Jesus. I mean, when did he do what and how did his life and ministry develop? See, it's possible to divide the ministry of Jesus into three phases. And that works well for us because from John's gospel, we learn that the public ministry of Jesus actually lasted three years. The first year has sometimes been called the year of his obscurity. It was during this time that he changed the water into wine. It was also during this time that he ministered to the woman at the well in Samaria. It was during this time that Jesus had that famous meeting with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. All that happened during his first year. Hi, this is Ben Lowell. You know what? We're missing you and the opportunities we've had in the past to get out and meet you face to face, share in times of worship and laughter and the study of God's word. So enough is enough. We want to invite you to be part of Back to the Bible Canada's The Gathering, taking place Sunday, September 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us on the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page and enjoy a time together with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, special musical guests including friends Shane and Angela Weeb, and many more to be announced in the days ahead. So mark it on your calendar for this national ministry event, The Gathering. Learn more by visiting the Back to the Bible Canada Facebook page, visit backtothebible.ca slash events, or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Remember, join us for The Gathering. The second year of Jesus' ministry saw him rise to exceptional popularity so that it really is possible to describe this as the year of his popularity. 
You know, to the most part, this is the ministry that was conducted in Galilee, which is in the north of Israel and alongside and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Here he makes Capernaum his hometown, and here we remember his famous Sermon on the Mount, his healing of the paralytic who was lowered from the roof, and and so on. But eventually, we come to the third year, which can be characterized as the year of strong and hate-filled opposition. And at some time, even though he had spent time in Judea and in the Decapolis and in Samaria, it was during this time that he sets his face toward leaving Galilee for good and going south and setting his face toward Jerusalem, for he knows his time is at hand. You know, I'm beginning a two-week series that will take us, you know, through Matthew 19 and 20. We're going to look at just two chapters in Matthew, but in terms of Jesus' overall ministry, this was the most important transition he was about to make. Matthew 19 begins with the words, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, when Matthew says, after Jesus finished these sayings, he's referring to what I've already referred to as Jesus' fourth discourse. The fourth discourse or teaching of Jesus begins with a question from the apostles. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The apostles asked that question because from their perspective, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be crowned as king. And then he would reign as Messiah from Jerusalem And eventually, he would defeat all of Israel's enemies, and from there, he would eventually rule the entire earth. And since that was about to happen, they're now jockeying for position and privilege among the twelve. Who's the greatest? And from that, Jesus calls a little child to himself, and then he says to the disciples, look, you have to humble yourself like this child. And then Jesus went to speak of resisting temptations and identifying with the least and identifying with the lost. He spoke about the forgiveness of their enemies, even to the extent that their eternal salvation depended on it. Now, after saying these things, after delivering this teaching, which was intended to teach his disciples to love and forgive, rather than seeking out positions of power and privilege, Jesus went on from there and, says Matthew, he went away from Galilee. Remember, I started by talking about gaining the big picture and make sure that as we examine the trees, we also keep our eyes on the forest and on the grand picture. We know from the gospel writers that he had left Galilee two times before, but this now will be perhaps his last withdrawal. He'll never come back to Galilee. The adoring crowds of Galilee will be left for the harsh critics of Judea and Jerusalem. Matthew simply says that he enters into the region of Judea, but then he adds beyond the Jordan. So you have to think of Israel in the time of Jesus as Galilee to the north with its rich farmland as well as fishing industries that were conducted there on the Sea of Galilee. See, that was the place where blue-collar workers plied their trade. To the south of Galilee was the region called Samaria, and to the south of Samaria was Judea, and in Judea was Jerusalem. But in your mind's eye, think again about Galilee to the north, in which one finds the Sea of Galilee. Now imagine out to the southern end of the lake is a river, and it runs straight south all the way down to the Dead Sea. And then imagine that on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee is a large area, which in the Bible is often called the Decapolis, or the place of ten cities. 
There, to the most part, you would find Gentiles, and Jesus had ministered there a few times. You might remember him casting out demons out of the man and sending those demons into the herd of pigs. Well, that was done in the Decapolis. Now, imagine you're going south from the Decapolis, but this time you're going south on the eastern side of the Jordan River and somewhere opposite of Samaria and running down to the region of Judea, but on the opposite side was a region called Perea. And Jesus has decided as he's going from Galilee down to Jerusalem that he's going to avoid Samaria to the west and he's going to travel on the eastern side of the Jordan River and he's going to go into this region of Perea. In today's terms, that would have put him in the nation of Jordan. But during Jesus' day, Perea was considered a part of Israel. It was a primarily Jewish area. Now, again, as I've said, Matthew doesn't give us the whole picture, but we do know that Jesus had been there just a short time earlier. John tells us that initially, as Jesus left Galilee for the last time, he went to the very location where John the Baptist had been baptizing before. And Luke tells us that Jesus, although he went through the towns and villages of Perea as he was making his way to Jerusalem, Luke says that as he was preaching— They were being told to make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many in the end of the day would stand on the outside of the kingdom. Luke also says that Jesus was teaching that if anyone comes after him, he must hate his own mother and father and so forth. And of course, he meant to say that they would have to cling to him as their highest joy. And then at some time during this Perean ministry, as Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem, he makes a detour. He goes across the Jordan into Judea and comes as far as Bethany, which is a little village just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. And he went there because his dear friend Lazarus had fallen ill and died, and Jesus goes to raise him from the dead. See, it's an important moment. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he's going to be illegally arrested, illegally tried, and then put to death by nothing short of an unruly mob. It's so important that his disciples will relish that moment of raising Lazarus from the dead because Jesus will say, I'm the resurrection and the life. He's the one who's the Lord of life. And for that reason, it should have been obvious to his disciples that even though he was going to Jerusalem and it would be dangerous there, they should not fear. He's the Lord of life. Well, after raising Lazarus, he doesn't go straight into Jerusalem. The Passover is not yet at hand, and we might get a sense that he's slowing the process down. Luke says that it was during that time that he healed the ten lepers, and you'll remember on that occasion that it was only one of those who even bothered to come back and thank him. Well, now, where is he there? Well, Luke says on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing through Samaria and Galilee. So did Jesus loop north and come back to Perea again a second time? Well, we're not absolutely sure, but it must have been something like that. Well, now, when we come to Matthew 19, all that Matthew mentions is that Jesus has left Judea and that he's heading south. But Matthew does add that large crowds were following him. And I have no doubt that the crowds were quite clear on this one point. No matter how circuitous the route that he's taking, before this ministry trip is over, Jesus is going to head straight into Jerusalem, and as the days were going by, it was becoming quite clear that he was intending to get to Jerusalem just in time for Passover. Passover was the time to remember the liberation from Egyptian slavery 
And Passover was also the time when faithful Jews believed that one day the Messiah would return. Clearly, Jesus was planning to go to Jerusalem for Passover, and the crowd sensed it. Having raised Lazarus from the dead, the expectation was sky high. And it's against this background that Matthew's method in telling the story of Jesus is especially important. He's just told us of Jesus teaching on the importance of humility rather than seeking greatness. Having taught about humility, Jesus leaves Galilee and is on his way to Jerusalem. And then along the way, as Jesus now re-enters Perea, maybe for the second time, the crowds are following, and Jesus, in compassion, is healing the sick, says Matthew. And as he does so, the anticipation of who he is and what he's about to do in Jerusalem is rising. But the Pharisees are already intercepting him. They want him to incriminate himself and get him to say something that's going to discredit him before the crowds. You know, like contemporary journalists, they're trying to get this political candidate to say something that's going to cause a scandal and take away the rising expectation of the crowd. Well, that's the force. That's the big picture that we must not forget as we read through chapters 19 and 20. Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, the crowd ever growing, ever more excited, the opposition growing ever more stronger, and in the center of all of this is a very calm Jesus, the Messiah, the ruler of the world who knows exactly what he's about and what he's come to do. That's the drama, so please listen for these next two weeks as we present the ministry of our Lord. John, thanks so much. You know, I'm looking forward to a great series, but let me ask you this. Is it possible, because I think it can be our human nature, to fall into a trap of focusing so much on some of the challenges one might consider when studying the Gospels, and and in doing so, missing out on how they really complete and round out the Gospel? Yeah, I do think, Ben, that it is very valuable for us to, at some point in time, get a book, perhaps, that helps us through a harmony of the Gospels and see these passages side by side and begin to understand how the overall ministry of Jesus flowed so that when we read, you know, the individual Gospel, like in this case, Matthew, we see exactly what Matthew is getting at and why he's pointing out these particular issues. So, uh, it's helpful to do that, to get that wider sense. So, I would commend that. Even it's a great Sunday school uh, thing to do for, you know, a group of adults to study the unity of the Gospels. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. These are challenging days. Many across Canada find themselves in circumstances that they would have never imagined. In times of crisis, we often find ourselves searching for something to place our confidence in. And for many, that means a rediscovery of faith. Maybe you're experiencing this yourself. This is the reason Back to the Bible Canada is steadfastly committed to offering Bible teaching you can trust every day with every medium possible, including this radio program. In short, we're committed to remaining faithful in declaring the trustworthy Bible teaching you've come to expect. Wherever people are searching for God, we want to be there. Your support of all the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, including Laugh Again and our young adult ministry in doubt, is essential. 
To discover more about these ministries or to find out about our national ministry event, The Gathering, this coming September 27th, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.